King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and, and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, um, in that reading we, we just had, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, praises you because you are able to humble those who walk in pride. And then in the second reading, we, we hear about Jesus humbling himself. Humbling himself. You are a God who in Christ humbled yourself. And that that was Christ's path to glory. And all of that is so counterintuitive to us. And yet I pray that you will give us uh, hearts that treasure humility, that hearts that desire and long after uh, the process of being brought low by you that we may be exalted in you. And do whatever is necessary to get that done in us. Make us a people for whom humility is the default disposition of our souls the humility that rejoices in you and knows that joy that only you can give. So will you come now and be our teacher, and will you help us to hear what it is that you have to say? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit down. Uh, and uh, if you would uh, keep an eye to page, uh, both pages uh, 8 and 9, in your service sheets. Um, we're continuing our series in uh, the Old Testament book of Daniel. We, each week we've been reading a little portion of Daniel. Um, today we're reading a portion that we read uh, last week, only last week we read a lot more. So um, that, that first reading is the intro and the conclusion of Daniel chapter 4. We're skipping a bunch in the middle, but we looked at that last week and we'll review some of it. But um, today we're going to talk a little bit about humility. Do you notice there at the very end of that first reading, Nebuchadnezzar says, he's praising God, and he says, um, those who walk in pride, God is able to bring into humility, able to humble. We're going to talk about that a little bit. And here's the thing about humility. 
Um, humility is like an extremely undersold virtue, right? Like nobody, there's not like a high endorphin release when we talk about humility. Do you know what I mean? Like very few people say, oh, humility, man, I've always wondered, how do we get more of that? Um, do tell, you know, I mean, it's just not, it's just not one of those ones that really compel us a great deal. It's a little bit like humility. It's kind of like, oh yes, and I suppose medicine is something I should take too. Um, it's, but I want to say that it's actually something that should really excite us. And here's why. There's lots of reasons. But here's one reason. Humility has a remarkable capacity to neutralize some of the scariest dynamics in our own lives and in our world. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about the book of Daniel. We've been talking about this uh, for several weeks. Um, the book of Daniel is set within the ancient empire of Babylon. So it's set about um, 2,500 years ago, something like that. And the Babylonian empire, we've been seeing this each week, was just a, a, an empire um, drunk with its own power. And that was a dynamic that started right at the very top. Um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was king in Babylon, and we've seen this. He worshipped power. Uh, he was arrogant, and as arrogant as he could be. And that uh, power addiction and that pride in Nebuchadnezzar led him to do very, very bad things. Right? So, I mean, just for instance, here's a, a little bit of his resume. Um, he was a very powerful king, and he invaded weaker nations that bordered on his. Uh, he notably invaded Jerus uh, uh, Israel. He destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, he leveled the temple. He plundered its national treasures. He took many of the people into a forced exile. He conscripted some of those exiles into his service, one of whom was Daniel. Another uh, of them was uh, three guys called Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And when they uh, uh, conscientiously objected to something that the king wanted them to do, he threw them alive into a burning, fiery furnace. Like, this is a bad guy. And it is his power addiction and his pride that animates his evil. And then, quite abruptly, we get chapter 4, what we just read. And it appears that everything changes, almost on a dime. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking in his own voice. And it's shocking because he speaks as a man who has been humbled. Um, this is the first time that we get Nebuchadnezzar speaking where he's not threatening violence. Almost every time he speaks up until this point, he threatens violence to somebody at some point. But here, he's not threatening violence. He's trying to persuade his readers, not coerce them. And he speaks, at the very beginning, he speaks of peace. It's a remarkable shift. And Nebuchadnezzar here, in this passage, is describing an experience of transformation that has humbled him in a very profound way. But very importantly, he doesn't speak as somebody who has been humiliated. What, do you know the difference? Uh, uh, when somebody is humiliated, they've been uh, treated cruelly and in such a way that has put them down. But he speaks of this process of being humbled 
And Nebuchadnezzar does not speak about it in a way that's bitter. He speaks about it in a way that he's thankful. He's thankful for the experience of being humbled. And he's writing to his entire empire here because he wants them, he wants his readers to experience the same thing. Now, I want you to just slow down and consider how profound this transformation, transformation and shift is. And I don't think we have to reflect too much to see its significance. I mean, we live in a world, am I right? We live in a world where power addiction and pride and arrogance just seems to exert a gravitational pull upon us. Does it, am I wrong? And that power addiction and that uh, pride and that arrogance that uh, exerts a kind of gravitational attraction upon many of us and upon our, our culture, our society, and our world very often expresses itself in terrible cruelty. Some of the most frightening dynamics in our world is tethered up in this. And you can see that in Eastern Europe, can't you? I mean, just look at your newsfeed. You don't have to go, you don't have to scroll far. But it's not just way out there. It's also at home. There are some of, the, some of the dynamics within our own culture, within our own nation, within our own city, within our own uh, uh, community. Some of the most frightening dynamics can be boiled down to things like power addiction and pride. You can see it within the church. And Emmanuel, if you have any self-awareness at all, you can look within your own heart and see its echo. And that's why I want to ask the question, what is it that can make Nebuchadnezzar free? Because I also want to ask the question, what is it that can make us free? And in this story, God begins to transform Nebuchadnezzar by giving him the gift of humility. And so what I want to do is I want to show you three ways God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. And it's three ways that God wants to humble us too. Here's the first one. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar by displaying God's comprehensive authority. Take a look at verse 35. It's toward the end of the reading. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and he's describing a great king. And he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can, say, can stay his hand or say to him, what is this you have done? Now, if I read that out of context and somebody told me that that was Nebuchadnezzar speaking, I would not be surprised to hear that that is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. But out of context, I would have assumed that Nebuchadnezzar is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar's self. Right? This is exactly the sort of thing that Nebuchadnezzar would say about Nebuchadnezzar because most of the time, he's a puffed up, braggadocious, arrogant man who worshipped his own power. And his pride was continually reinforced because he was surrounded with people whom he could dominate and there were very few other people around in his world that could go against his will. But all that changed when he slammed up against the, the God of Israel. But he didn't slam up against the God of Israel in the context of battle. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had already defeated the people of Israel. A and it, when Nebuchadnezzar defeated the people of Israel, and when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed uh, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, almost certainly he concluded that he had defeated the God of Israel. 
but it ended up he had miscalculated. Look at the reading. As I said before, this is an intro and a conclusion to Daniel chapter 4. And in the middle, we get a story about how Nebuchadnezzar temporarily lost his sanity. We, we read this last week, if you were here. Let me remind you. Everything was going really, really well for Nebuchadnezzar. He was at the top of his game. But then Nebuchadnezzar had a bad dream. And he called in uh, Daniel, who was one of the uh, forced exiles from Jerusalem, and he asked Daniel to interpret the dream. Daniel interprets the dream, and he says, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a dream from God, and it's a warning, and it's a warning that's telling you to repent or to turn around, uh, to reform. And Daniel says, if you don't repent and turn and reform, then uh, the God of Israel is going to suspend your power. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really buy it. Uh, he's a bit skeptical. He's an agnostic of some type, at least to some extent. And he carries on with his arrogance and with his pride and with his abuse of power. And then he slammed up against the God of Israel. Not in battle. He slammed up against the God of Israel and he lost. And specifically, he lost his sanity. And we don't know all the details, but he lost some of his cognitive function, and that led to the loss of his political power. But what's more important than what happened is the lesson that he learned from it. Previously, Nebuchadnezzar had thought that he was his own king, and he had a lot of evidence to back it up. Previously, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was his own sovereign authority, that he lived an autonomous life, that he called the shots in his life and in his world. But then he became weak. And in his experience of weakness, he came to see that what he thought was true of himself was actually true of the God of Israel. He came to find out that God and not himself was the true authority within his world, and he learned that God and not Nebuchadnezzar held comprehensive authority. Now, let me just pause here, Emmanuel. Uh, one of the things that we like to talk about here at Emmanuel is deep transformation. We want to be a people who are deeply transformed we don't want to stay the same. We want to, be, we want to change, and we want to change in a good way. Deep transformation, real spiritual conversion, always begins with this insight. It begins with the insight that God, and not me, is in charge. That God is in charge in a way that we can never be in charge, and in a way that we shouldn't try to be in charge. And even as I say that, there's, it's, it's possible on the one hand to kind of say, oh, well, sure, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. And it's also, if, if, you're, if you feel the bite of that reality, it is likely to trouble you. And we'll come back to that in a second. But if it does trouble you, that's a good thing. Because Nebuchadnezzar it was as he wrestled with this idea that he was not in control of his own life, but that God was the rightful king and he wasn't. It was as he wrestled with that, that that's what led to his transformation. So the first way that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled was that he was humbled before God's comprehensive authority. 
but you have to follow that immediately with the second way that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. And the second way that Nebuchadnezzar was humbled is he was humbled before God's just authority. Think with me here. The idea, just like I was just saying, the idea that God is sovereign, in control, in charge of everything, and specifically in charge of my life and your life, um, that is not a straightforwardly, obviously good news idea, right? For a lot of us, um, we want to be in charge of our own lives, and we want to be in charge of our own lives for really good reasons. Um, for a lot of us, we can't imagine trusting anyone other than ourselves for our final authority in our life. Like, how could we possibly trust somebody that much? My life, my choice, and if anyone claims authority over me, that must mean that they are a tyrant and no one wants a tyrant. And so all this rhetoric about God being king and being uh, the rightful authority in my life, all that can sound horrible because what if God's a tyrant? What if he's like Nebuchadnezzar, only bigger and stronger and more engaged in the details of my life? That sounds like a nightmare. Can you see it? Okay, but go back to Nebuchadnezzar because here's the thing about tyrants. Tyrants always recognize other tyrants. And tyrants often use each other, they often fight against each other, but the thing they never do is trust each other. But look at the last line in the reading. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't resent God. Nebuchadnezzar admires God. He's clearly, in some level, trusting God. Verse 37 says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. He doesn't seem to be doing this through gritted teeth. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What I'm trying to show you is that King Nebuchadnezzar consents to God's kingship and authority. It's not that God exerted power and it forced Nebuchadnezzar to his knees through gritted teeth. It's rather that God used his power to bring Nebuchadnezzar to see something he hadn't seen before. He brings him to see his own pride, his own abuse of power, his own sin, and simultaneously, at the same moment, he's able to see that God is right and just and good. And it's as those two things come together that he gives his consent to God. Look at the top of the reading. Look at verse 2. He says this, It seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Can you hear it? Not only consent, there's gratitude there. He's experienced God's power. It's brought him to see his own sin. It's humbled him to the ground. And yet there's no sense that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw this as cruelty. He's experiencing it as the opposite. He's experiencing it as God's kindness. And this is the second aspect of transforming humility. We're transformed when we see that God's, that we see God's authority, that God is king and I am not. But at the same time, we have to see God's justice and his goodness and his kindness and that these things go together. And we won't be humbled towards transformation until we see God's goodness so clearly that we can consent to his authority. 
Now, this is where I want you to slow down and I'm going to shift just a little bit. Because this explains one of the main reasons why Christian humility always grows from considering Jesus' death and resurrection. Why do I say that? Because Jesus' death and resurrection shows that Jesus is the opposite of a tyrant. Jesus' death and resurrection shows that he is a king, that he is a king with comprehensive authority, but it shows that he is a king who is humble and just and kind. And you can see that in our second reading. The second reading comes from uh, the New Testament letter uh, of Paul to the Philippians. And the Apostle Paul is describing Jesus Christ, and in a remarkable way, he says that Jesus' death, his, Jesus on the cross, was his moment, get this, of enthronement. He says, uh, Jesus Christ, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't, in a sense, a power addict. He wasn't holding on with white knuckles. But no, he let it go. And he became, he, he embraced servant, the identity of a servant, and he became human. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And it was almost like God, the Father, had always been looking for the kind of king to whom he could entrust final authority. He had always been looking for a human, a human who could bear the weight of comprehensive authority in this world. But too often, humanity, in fact, all of us, in some ways, are more like Nebuchadnezzar. And none of us could stand up to the scrutiny of God the Father's gaze. But then when he looked at Jesus Christ, his eternal son, who had become human, and who was obedient and humble to the point of death, and that when he saw Jesus Christ, his beloved son, uh, experiencing torture and death and forgiving his enemies in that moment, it was as if God the Father looked at him and said, there it is, that's my king. That's what a true king looks like. Therefore, because of the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and that he is Lord of all. The cross and the death of Jesus Christ was the moment of enthronement where God said, that's my king. That's a true king. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it, it confirmed that he was, in fact, a king overall. And one of the things that that's so important for us is for this. If God the Father looks at Jesus and says his humility and his obedience and his self-sacrifice qualifies him to be entrusted with ultimate authority, then it also means that we can look at Jesus Christ and say your humility and your obedience and your self-sacrifice qualifies you to be my authority in my life. And as we entrust Jesus with final authority in our lives, humility begins to grow within us, and the pride and power addiction that exerts a gravitational attraction on our souls begins to die. And that is the humility, Emmanuel, that leads to transformation, and we've got to have it. So, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled in the face of God's comprehensive authority. Nebuchadnezzar is also humbled in the face of God's just authority. He's good. But then finally, he was humbled before God's eternal authority. Go back to the top of the reading. Look at the little number three, verse three. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, How great is, are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Do you see how it says that God's kingdom doesn't end? It's perpetual. And that is an essential conviction of Christian humility. And here's why. Emmanuel, every single generation is tempted to think that God may have been uh, relevant in ages past, but not so much in this generation. Um, just imagine you're living in Babylon. Imagine, actually, you're living in Jerusalem, and you belong to the God of Israel, and then Babylon sweeps in and destroys everything and carries you off to Babylon, and you're sitting there, and you look out and you see the Temple of Bel, and, the, and you see all these other temples, and you see the power and the might of Babylon, wouldn't you be tempted to conclude that the God of Israel was an obsolete thesis? An obsolete hypothesis. Clearly, I would have thought, if I were there, that the God of Israel, loyalty to the God of Israel would evaporate. Clearly, Babylon was the future. You know, the funny thing is, the empire of Babylon didn't last that long. You know what did? Loyalty to the God of Israel. It's remarkably endurable. And when Jesus shows up, loyalty to Jesus as king grew. That is to say, the kingdom of God endured when great empires rose and fell like waves of the sea. And for 2,000 years, uh, people in widely divergent cultures, from widely divergent social backgrounds, from widely divergent historical situations have all said that Jesus Christ is the king who can bear our trust. His kingdom doesn't end. And it won't end in this generation either. And Emmanuel, pride wants to whisper in our ears and wants to whisper to you and say, this is the generation that will show God is obsolete. Or this is the generation where we will modify a bit of God to make him a little bit more relevant. And friends, that's just pride rebranding itself as cutting-edge avant-garde. Don't believe the branding. Because that idea is as ancient as sin it's as ancient as power addiction. It's as ancient as pride. It's as ancient as the cruelty and the abuse that goes with power addiction and pride. And it will become a dangerous delusion in our day. And on the other hand, there are a few things that this generation needs more than a church of Jesus Christ which is humbled before his comprehensive authority and humbled before the goodness of his authority and his sacrifice and his love and his kindness and his justice and is humbled before the perpetual eternity of his kingdom. We need that kind of humility because that kind of humility, Emmanuel, don't miss the power of this. That kind of humility has power to take a power-addicted, proud, arrogant ruler and humble him to the ground and make him a man who speaks peace to his people. And in this day, when hate seems 
to exert a gravitational attraction upon us. And in this day and in this world where pride and arrogance seems to be the default setting of so many of our leaders, in this time and in this day, humility is needed as much or more than ever because it can safeguard us from some of our worst inclinations. And not only can it safeguard us, it can equip us to contribute to the well-being of our world in great peril. I think of somebody like Corrie Ten Boom. I don't know if you know that name, but she was a woman in, in Holland when the Nazis came in. And her and her family were humbled before the kingdom of God. Jesus was their king and no one else. And so they opened their home and they, they, they harbored and they hid members of the Jewish community. And it cost them dearly. And Corrie Ten Boom spent time in a prison camp and she lost her sister and her father. But it was humility before Christ as her king that allowed her to be a fragrance of justice amongst this stench of that age. And so what will... What do we need to be to be equipped to bear that same fragrance in our time? Friends, humility is central to it. So I want to ask Emmanuel, are you being humbled before the kingship of Jesus Christ? Or are you holding on to your own individual autonomy? I know it's tempting to hold on to your individual autonomy. I know it's tempting to imagine that this is a unique generation that's just different. Everything's changed and we want to be in step with the changes. But look at Jesus and look at him on the cross and admire in him what it is that God the Father regarded. Look at him and see his humility and his sacrifice. Look at him and see his love. Look at him and see his power that defeated death. And look at him and keep your eyes fixed upon the crucified God until you find yourselves resembling God the Father and saying, yes, that's my king. Yes, that's the one that I will trust. And then you will begin to echo and to reflect that beauty in our world. And there's nothing better we can do for this world. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.